So I typically don't read a lot of news every day. Uh, usually if I read too much of it, I start to get kind of depressed. Uh, when I think about this last year, and I think about the news cycles and the headlines that we hear over and over again, what's really overwhelmingly clear to me is that the American church is in a very real crisis when it comes to sanctification. And it goes deeper than just high-profile Christians who self-destruct uh, in their sin. The regularly recurring headlines of sin probably more character. We have become people who are passionate about stopping the sins of pagans, and yet all the while we seek to downplay our own sin or to hide from it in some way. As Christians, we often get fired up about the folly and the depravity that we see very openly and very clearly outside of the church, and yet often secretly, even in ways maybe we don't fully understand we're feeding sinful things in our own lives, and we're reaping the pain and the misery that comes from that. And the broken leaders, I think, that many evangelicals have chosen in a variety of places are really just a poignant reflection of all these sobering truths. Whether it's our political leaders or the leaders of major Christian institutions or ministries, or prominent pastors, the prevailing idea amongst many is that whether or not a professing Christian is pursuing holiness has very little to do with how effective someone is in his or her own role, or whether or not this person should receive support from Bible-believing Christians. Conservative Christians, we used to proclaim the slogan, character counts, right, years ago. What's very striking to me and also very tragic is that you hardly hear anyone say this anymore on any side of the spectrum, left or right. Over the years, many people in the wider church, they've abandoned this for the faulty belief that the kind of person someone is doesn't really matter all that much. And what really matters is whether or not this person has potential power or influence over our enemies. But in the face of the total catastrophe of ignoring sanctification that the church finds yourself in, God speaks in his word with crystal clarity telling us that there's no salvation outside of sanctification. There is no salvation outside of the believer's sanctification. And God plainly says this in the Bible over and over again. The book of Hebrews exhorts us, saying, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peter says it this way when he exhorts the church, saying, Do not become conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... Peter's quoting from Leviticus, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. He begins his magnificent letter in Ephesians 
by proclaiming that believers have been chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So why has God predestined his people? Why have we been chosen before the foundation of the world? Why why have we been united to the Lord Jesus? Well, the Bible's succinct answer is really clear for our sanctification. People of God, God has predestined us so that we would become holy through our constant turning away from sin and pursuing God's righteousness in countless practical ways in our own lives. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to zero in on one particular passage in Ephesians that I love that gives us a powerful picture of what sanctification is about. And we're going to divide this passage into two parts. We're going to talk about first this portrait of sin that Paul gives us, and then what is the essence of sanctification about. So in our passage, we get these two very uh, con- clear contrasting pictures that are very different. In the first few verses in our passage that we read in Ephesians, Paul gives us a very bleak portrait of life outside of Christ. He describes for us the mechanics of how the corruption of sin works, how it infects the hearts and the minds of all those who reject God. And then in verses 20 through 25, Paul's going to juxtapose this portrait with a portrait of life. How God brings the restoration and renewal to his people through this process of sanctification. So let's turn our attention now to God's word and let's look at each one of these pictures that Paul gives for us in the book of Ephesians. So this first picture that Paul gives us, we said, is all about the corruption of sin. Paul begins our passage by exhorting the Ephesian Christians to leave behind one way of life, a way of life that's characterized, uh, characterizes all those who are outside of Christ. What Paul says in verses 17 through 19 is this powerful description of how sin works in the unbelieving world. He says to the Ephesian church that they must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He goes on to say that the world of unbelievers includes those who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So what Paul gives us here is this powerful picture of the pervasiveness of sin for those who are outside of Jesus' body, how sin has permeated hearts and minds of the people it infects. He mentions that their minds are places of futility, places of spiritual darkness. When the scriptures mention this word futility, and especially when it talks about the futility of unbelieving thought, it often connects it with idolatry, with a worship problem. This is what we see in another passage very parallel to the one we read in Romans chapter 1, where Paul mentions how pagan people outside of Christ, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes on to mention that idolatry is the practical outworking of all of this and how people will exchange the glory of the creator for his creation. So the picture that Paul gives us in verses 17 and 18 is that for the unbelieving the world, The spiritual lights have gone out, and they're groping in the dark. They're estranged from God. Throughout Ephesians, Paul uses imagery of darkness to describe the life of sin that characterizes those who are outside of the people of God. So later in chapter 5, Paul will exhort the Ephesians saying, For one time you were darkness, 
But now you were light in the Lord. And he says, walk as children of the light. And this imagery of light and darkness, is this is just a piece of a much bigger picture that the scriptures give us about the realm of unbelief and the realm of faith. One of my favorite passages in Proverbs gives us a similar picture. This is Proverbs 4, 18 through 19. It says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So here in Proverbs, the idea is that God's people have the light of the knowledge of God that enables them to see, to understand vital things in life. Christians are people who understand essential things about who God is, who we are and how the world works. But the realm of unbelief, Proverbs says, is like walking around in the dark and you're constantly tripping over things that you don't even understand. Constant confusion and frustration marks the lives of those who reject God and choose the way of the wicked. And we see so many examples of this, countless examples in our wider culture about the kind of futile, darkened thinking that the Bible describes here. We can see this especially in the ways that so many of the problems that our culture uh, rails against are problems that it actually creates itself. So, for example, in the realm of unbelief, um, people preach to people um, that sexuality should be free, should be free from oppressive restraints of any kind that previous generations held to. Unbelievers will rage against God's good design for boundaries for sexuality And yet it's shocked, it's abhorred by all the sexually abusive and exploitive behavior that is increasingly prevalent in our own society. But before we move on, it's crucial for us to see that the spiritual battle that Paul's talking about here with the darkness and the corruption of sin, it's not just out there in the realm of unbelievers. Now, we have to see that it's, it's come to our front door as well. It resides in the smoldering remains of the old Adam that all of us are carrying around. A pull towards a darkened understanding or a callous, hard heart is happening in every Christian family, in every Christian marriage, in the heart of every child growing up in a Christian household. The very fact that Paul exhorts the Ephesians to no longer walk as the Gentiles tells us that even we as God's covenant people, we will continue to experience the painful spiritual tug towards the anti-life that is sin. The kind of life that pervades all those who do not belong to Jesus. This is so crucial, especially to see in light of our current cultural climate that has become increasingly polarized, a climate where we are encouraged to wrestle against flesh and blood and not against the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil, which is the very opposite of what the scriptures tell us to do in places like Ephesians 6. Christians have expended considerable energy and effort, especially over the last few years in our country's culture wars. We think we are good, at identifying the enemies of the gospel that are coming to us from outside of God's people to threaten us. But where Christians often fail in seeing the spiritual battle lines that are happening right here, 
in our own hearts, in our own minds, the very real battles that are raging in our marriages and in our families and in every relationship in your life that's close to you. Okay, so what else does Paul say uh, about this realm of unbelief? Let's look now to verses 18 and 19 where Paul says that the spiritual ignorance uh, of Gentile unbelievers, it's flown from a heart that's been hardened, a heart that he says that it's grown callous and has given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. The picture that Paul paints here is a terrifying way of life for people that have become hardened to their sins so that there's no moral compass left anymore. There's no desire to turn from sin through repentance. Sin seeks to corrupt people so that they are no longer, there's no longer any breaks left on the path of sin. There's no desire or ability to slow down, to stop, or to go a different way. This word callous that Paul uses could also have a connotation of hopelessness or despondency. The idea is that one feels stuck in a way that is full of despair. People without hope for anything ever changing for the better are people who will not resist the pull of evil, but instead will just be led to wherever uh, the sinful flesh wants them to go. And the scriptures repeatedly warn not only people in general, but the scriptures warn God's people in particular about the dangers of becoming hardened to our sin. Listen to what Ephesians 3 says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So before we move on, let's think about what would heeding this warning about a hard heart look like for us as Christians? How would we know if we are being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin like Hebrews mentions? Well, one way we can know whether or not we become spiritually hard and callous is to see what our posture is towards our own sin and the sins of others. People who are spiritually callous basically take a posture that says, you must repent, but I will not. You must repent, but I will not. People of God, we need to be constantly taking spiritual inventory of ourselves to see, is this my heart posture towards people? I do believe there really are people that do harm us and sin against us in terrible ways, ways that will cut us to the core, and we will feel the effects of that for a long time. And it's okay to be honest about that. But in the relationships that matter the most, and the relationships uh, that involve the people closest to you, can you see the ways your own sin has played a uh, part in the pain and the hurt that you've experienced? Can you see the ways that you have responded sinfully in the moments when others sin against you? Can you see the ways that you have pushed others away? That you refuse to to move towards someone else in the midst of the pain and the brokenness? Do you see the ways that bitterness and hatred start to grow in your own heart? Can you see the ways your sin has led you to be dishonest to the people in your life? Or the ways that you've been cruel 
or harsh or ways that your words really seek to punish people when they hurt you instead of demonstrate the mercy and grace of God. In any relationship that matters to you, if you are unwilling to honestly examine your own heart and face and confess your own sins, then you need to see that you have begun to cultivate a callous heart, a hard heart towards your own sin. All right, so Paul describes the realm of unbelief not only as having a callous heart, a hardened heart that stubbornly refuses responsibility for sin, but it also includes those who have given themselves up to sensuality, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, as he says. So this phrase, given themselves up, again, this looks really familiar when you read Romans chapter 1, where we read how God gives people over uh, to the destructive desires of their own sinful nature. In our passage in Ephesians, we see that in the realm of unbelievers includes not only people whom God has given over to sin, but it includes those who have willingly handed themselves over to the slave master of sin. One of the great tragedies of sin is that it seeks to draw people towards their own destruction. That compels people to willingly march towards their own spiritual death. This word sensuality in verse 19, often you read Paul, it has a sexual connotation to it. This obviously does not refer to mere sexual pleasure, which of course is a good God-given gift, but pleasure that selfishly pursues its right to be gratified no matter what, regardless of the cost or the consequences, completely uh, in rebellion to God's design. So Paul in verse 19 basically gives us a one-sentence summary that I think is a a great picture um, of the entire agenda of our secular culture when it comes to sexuality. There's this idea here that people uh, want what they want and no one can tell them otherwise, that they have a right to be gratified no matter what God says. There's also this idea here of people who are constantly craving more, but they never seem to get enough. Paul mentions that these are people who are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we can see that sin is not just something people do. No, it's something people hungrily gobble up. They crave it. They want more of it. This is a hunger that's fueled by the corruption of deceitful desires, as Paul's going to mention later in verse 22. You can see here in plenty of other places in the scriptures that there's a very real sense in which all sin has an addictive element to it because it involves these deceitful desires, desires that promise one thing to us, but in reality they deliver something very different. And Christians are people who begin to see through the lies of the deceit, and we can uh, awaken to God's truth in these moments and see the lies that come to us whenever our our desires are turned towards a sinful direction. That's a bleak picture of sin, isn't it? Of life outside of Jesus and the mindset and the heart posture of our fallen human nature. So let's move on now to the second picture that Paul gives us in verses 20 through 24. Uh, if, if the first part of what we read about in verses 17 through 19 gives us an explanation of the darkness and the degenerative power of sin, then the second half gives us an explanation of God's kingdom of light and life that are found only through faith in Jesus. 
In this section, what Paul's going to do is going to give us a picture of the life of spiritual renewal that every believer is participating in. If the realm and kingdom of evil and sin is about pervasive destruction, if it's about the corruption of people, then we can see the work of God within his people is all of this in reverse. It's the complete opposite of the process of the corruption of sin. God's work of sanctification in his people is about stripping away what is spiritually sick and polluted and restoring human beings to the glory that they were created to reflect. The corruption of sin is like sanctification in reverse. It's a degenerative process that leads people deeper and deeper into spiritual death. But the good news of the gospel is that you, Christian, have been rescued from this terrible conversion unto death to borrow words from an author named Patrick McCormick. You, Christian, have been raised from spiritual death to life, and you now participate in God's great conversion unto life, a process that will culminate in this climactic day when you see the Lord Jesus face to face, and you stand before him, and in that day you'll be perfectly holy. Okay, so what does Paul say in this section in verses 20 through 24? Starting in verse 20, Paul wants the Ephesians uh, believers to see that everything, everything that they've been taught about Jesus includes this call to move away from the life of sin that he just described in the unbelieving Gentile world. He begins by telling them emphatically, but that is not the way you learn Christ. What strikes me about verse 20 is that Paul couldn't imagine a context in which someone learns about Jesus and yet has no category for the necessity of being transformed through God's work of sanctification. Again, the Bible makes it plain that learning about Jesus, it must always necessarily come with this call to live a different life, to live a holy, transformed life. So then Paul basically says that Jesus, as both the subject and author of this Christian instruction that the Ephesians has received, has led to this essential teaching that they are now to put off their old humanity and put on God's renewed humanity. He assumes already they've been taught in Jesus to put off their old self, which he says belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So to summarize everything Paul just says here in a way that's easy to remember, Paul gives us really three actions involved here in our sanctification. It involves putting on, it involves being renewed, and then finally it involves um, putting off as well. So putting off, being renewed, and putting on. So let's quickly look at each, each three of these things. So Paul says first in verse 22... Uh, that it's an essential part of sanctification that we put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through these deceitful desires. This word for self that Paul uses here has, um, it's the general word for man, which in Greek just means mankind or humanity. So the idea is that we are called to take off our fallen self, to put off our old self, the part of our broken, sickly humanity that is still in Adam. We're to take it off like a set of old, dirty, raggedy clothes. And we're to exchange these clothes for our true nature, for who we were made to be in Jesus. And a key component of our old humanity, Paul says, involves these deceitful desires that he mentions in verse 22. 
And so if putting off uh, our old humanity involves deceitful desires, then this must mean that, that a huge part of sanctification involves the necessity of saying no to these deceitful desires, desires that we, we feel, right, throughout the Christian life. Putting off our old humanity will involve a painful process of self-denial, seeking to crucify thoughts and attitudes and actions and desires that, in lots of moments, will actually feel good. They will appear to be compelling and enticing for us. And I think this is really the most difficult and exhausting part of God's call for sanctification for us as God's people. This constant denial of self-gratification that many times feels painful. It feels excruciating. And the task of putting off our old humanity obviously is made even more difficult because of our fallen world that we live in. A world that's constantly telling us to put on the very thing that God repeatedly says for us to take off. We live in a society where the self is sacrosanct, as author Robert Roberts says. All around us, all the time, we are told that it would be wrong to deny yourself anything that you want, that doing this would be a failure to be true to yourself. But people of God, we must view the pain of taking off our old self through the eyes of faith and see that what might often feel like death is actually life. C.S. Lewis beautifully puts it this way. He says, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. His compulsion is our liberation. Okay, so after Paul says that we are to put off our old man, he exhorts us in verses 23 through 24 to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on our new self. So sanctification is about becoming more and more the human being that God created you to be in Jesus. The picture of sanctification you get in the the scriptures is not this description of a set of ecstatic experiences that we have over and over, mystical experiences, but rather it's a process of lifelong renovation, lifelong restoration. This is a process where we are becoming more and more human, people who increasingly reflect the glory of God. The New Testament summary of sanctification, especially in Paul's letters, is for Christians to be who we are or to live in light of what is true about us in Christ. Sanctification begins by us being joined to Jesus, the one who is perfectly holy, then us becoming more like him in holiness through constant repentance and faith. The reality of who we are in Jesus is what empowers us to labor and to work in sanctification, to work out our sanctification with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Again, as we said earlier, God has chosen us before time to belong to Jesus and to become more and more conformed to him in our hearts and in our minds. So this provides us enormous hope and encouragement that sanctification is certain for all of God's people. All right, so what exactly is the nature of the renewal that Paul mentions in verses 23 through 24? When Paul talks about being renewed in the spirit of our minds, what is he saying here? Well, this is a way of him talking about the change 
that God performs in us in the deepest parts of who we are. So it involves our thoughts or our desires, our feelings, our attitudes towards God. Everything else in life, right? The Spirit of your minds includes all of you. Other places in Paul's letters where he talks about sanctification, what he does is he also pairs together the work of the Spirit in God's work of transformation in our sanctification. So he writes this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then he says, From this comes, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So while there is some degree of mystery involved in how exactly the Spirit sanctifies us, we do know from various places in the Scriptures that the Spirit works through appointed means, that He has particular places where He normally does His work. And two of the most important places we see in the Bible uh, is God's Word, and also when God's people gather together to offer themselves as living sacrifices in worship. We see all throughout the Old Testament how the Spirit of God dwelt in God's appointed place of worship. And this hasn't changed for us since we are God's final living, breathing temple. So when we do something as simple as read your Bible or to come here each and every Sunday, what you are doing is taking place, taking part in God's sweeping work of sanctification and recreation that is happening right here in our midst week after week. What we also see in verses 23 and 24 is that sanctification is also about a deep, profound exchange of identities. It's about a deep, profound exchange of identities. It's about one identity that is in the process of being destroyed and one identity that is in the process of being renewed and strengthened. So another crucial truth here about sanctification is that only God's work and our sanctification will tell us who we truly are. Identity lies at the heart of so many of the cultural battleground issues that we so often hear about in our headlines. Our fallen culture believes that identity really matters. And you can see this in so many ways, in all the discussions about identity Politics, or many of the racial issues and cultural problems that are constantly happening. The debates and arguments over sexuality and sexual orientation are really a debate about identity and who has the authority to determine who we truly are as human beings. The heartbreaking reality for the world of unbelief is that the more unbelievers seek to find their identity in their old humanity and not in God's truth, the more lost they become. So we can tell the unbelieving world that identity does matter, that it's huge, it's vitally important. But the scriptures give God's people an emancipation proclamation by proclaiming where we are made to find our true identity. People of God, the next time you are asked what you identify as, you should say without hesitating, you identify as Christian. You are someone who is participating in God's new humanity. You are someone who is being remade into the image of Jesus. So that means our deepest, truest identity is found in who we are becoming in Christ as people who are being recreated more and more in the image of God. Who Christians are in the core of our being 
is the image of God, right? Something that is righteous and holy. We are people who are becoming more righteous and holy as we're conformed more and more to the image of God, as Paul mentions at the end of verse 24. All right, there's all kinds of practical things that the doctrine of sanctification means for us, but I want to close this morning by mentioning just one thing that I think sanctification uh, teaches us about the Christian life. If every Christian is taking part in God's work of sanctification, then this means that there is always hope for change. Always hope for change for anyone who belongs to Jesus. One of the most significant ways that Satan and evil speak to us is through this voice of despair. This voice that tells you that nothing is ever going to change, that you are hopelessly stuck, and all of us hear this voice in so many different places in life. We hear this voice when we suffer. We hear this voice in our marriages. We hear it in our families. We hear it when we find ourselves repenting of the same sin that we have done a thousand times. Despair is so spiritually deadly because it saps all our strength and energy to get up and to keep going, to keep fighting the battles that we need to fight. And when we listen to that voice of despair in our marriages and our families and anywhere else, what we do is we stop loving and moving towards each other. And what we begin to do is we begin to settle for deep bitterness and resentment. And what we actually do is we only accelerate the relational brokenness by retreating or avoiding or perpetuating some other broken pattern. And so listening to despair actually begins to create the very things we hate the most so that the lies of despair will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. People of God, listen, we are only truly stuck if you listen to despair. God's gracious work of sanctification tells us that the voice of despair is never right. It is never true. It is always lying to you. As long as we're looking to Jesus in faith, there is hope for change no matter how broken you feel, no matter how bleak or discouraging your relationships or your circumstances are. Sanctification is this lifelong process of change that will not be complete until we see Jesus face to face. And so that means that we as Christians are hopeful and it means that we are patient even while we long for the lifelong work of sanctification to one day finally be completed. So this means change isn't just possible for us as Christians. It's unshakably certain. So that means you can resist the overwhelming voice of despair. You don't have to listen to what it says. You can repent of your sins. You can get up and keep going. You can move towards other Christians who have harmed you and give them another chance to repent and believe and change. The process of putting off our old humanity and then putting on our new humanity is not something you will ever perfect this side of heaven, but it is a process that is certain, and it is a process that you must persevere in. I'll close our time today uh, by just reading one more scripture. This is kind of a pre-benediction benediction of this morning. Listen carefully what this says from 1 Thessalonians 5. 
And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Father, praise you for your word. I pray now that you would uh, bless us as we continue this service. Father, help us be holy people. We need the help of your spirit desperately to do this. Would you come now and continue to be our helper? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.